Good morning. Welcome to Thy Strong Word, everybody. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading through the entire Bible together, book by book, chapter by chapter, and here we are. We're about to close out another book of the Bible. This is Isaiah chapter 66, the final chapter of Isaiah. It might sound a little bit familiar. We saw 65 and 66 uh, way back in the fall during Advent, um, but so here we are in Epiphany in the new year, and we're reading through these chapters, and we're going to see how this just really just completes all the thoughts, makes all the connections tied up. Uh, we, we saw a lot of that actually yesterday in 65, but in 66, you just get this, it's just such a big scope, this kind of final judgment and glory of the Lord, whirlwinds and fires and all the rest. So what is going on here? Um there's a, there's a lot. I'm, I'm excited to go into this, uh, our last time in Isaiah. So joining us today, we've got a returning guest. We've got uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Noland, pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in San Mateo, California. Good morning, brother. Welcome back. This is uh, an exciting chapter to be looking at today. You sure bet it is. It really has a lot of imagery and uh, hope and condemnation, too. It's uh, kind of a summary, as you said, of the book of Isaiah. Yeah, it works really well. I mean, we, we saw how, I mean, these, these last few chapters, they kind of take a step back, it seems, from 60 to 63. But uh, like we saw last time in 65, they complement so well, just like the first opening chapters. You know, we remember in chapter one, it was a picture of fire, of destruction, of devastation. And so here we are again, um, similar sort of situation. But now this the, the finality, though, is I think what is so, uh, I mean, it just stands out compared to chapter one. It's just like everything seems like it's been finally sorted out. There, There's no gray anymore. It's just black and white. Right. And the other thing is, is since it is the end of Isaiah, uh, it's the last oracle we have from him. It points forward to the next prophecy who for the tribes of Judah would be Jeremiah, I think. I don't think there's anybody between the two. And mm -hmm. Jeremiah is there when the southern kingdom falls and the temple's destroyed. So the next prophet to come up in Israel, certainly the major one, he sees all this happens. But then it also, this chapter then points forward to the New Testament times. And of course, you, you find Jesus throughout the book of Isaiah, but you see Jesus, the beginning of the church, and even the end times. So yeah, there's a whole lot here. Yeah, no, thanks for bringing that up. I'm looking at the context here. We've seen that how... Uh, when one book follows the other, uh, that kind of shows a little bit of these connections that that, that are that have been there for a long time, and and we see that um, both in the the English ordering that we have that um, mirrors the Septuagint, and also the uh, the ordering that we have in in the Hebrew. Um, yeah, Jeremiah is what follows, and so you you, you do kind of go from just destruction to destruction, and then as you said, like in, in the New Testament, a lot of this stuff seems to get picked up in those those end times discourses of our Lord Jesus. So uh, yeah, a lot of connections inside Isaiah and also outside of Isaiah. Um, so a lot of things going on in, you know, what's uh, only a medium sized chapter of 24 verses. Uh, and yeah, and we're actually going to read all 24 of them, Lord willing, even verse 24, which doesn't show up in the lectionary. <laughs> Is that right? Did they drop that out? Well, how, how did yeah, that happen? It, 
Yeah, I know. I'm I'm not sure what the history is there. You know, it's not uncommon, right, for the lectionary to drop out the last couple of verses of something because uh, I, I don't know. Sometimes I think that the lectionary doesn't want to end it on a on a down note or something like that. But <laughs> yeah, when we read it back in Advent, it stopped uh, short and ended at verse 23. You're, you're uh, right. Yeah. I never noticed yeah. that about the lectionary. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I, I remember making a point about it when I was preaching a sermon back in the fall. But today we get to read it. So we, we will read it and we will explain it in, in its context here. Um, it's, it's, we've seen this again and again in Isaiah. You know, what can seem like a, a scary thing or a, or a downer, in its context, there's actually some pretty strong silver lining around it. So we will get there, Lord willing. But let's start from the top as we do. Brother, would you say a prayer for us and for everyone listening today? Certainly. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you be with us today as we again turn our hearts and minds to the words of your scriptures, especially the words of Isaiah, the great prophet, that you would give us an understanding heart and mind, and as as Isaiah also asks, a contrite spirit, that is a repentant heart, that we too may see our sins and our need for you and our need for our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, let's start with a little chunk just to get the ball rolling here. Um, maybe just the first four verses, and we can kind of pause there. Uh, the, the the first section keeps running on through verse six, but just to kind of break it up a little bit here. So here's the first four verses of Isaiah chapter 66, last chapter of the book. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they didn't listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. So, uh, again, just there's this very strong division that we have going on here that, um, I mean, it's only going to get stronger in the next couple of verses, but, I mean, it's very striking here. The outward appearance of this this group that's within the people of God, but then the reality, um, I, I mean, it's a, it's a very strong description there. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. God looks down and, yeah, outwardly, yeah, they're, they're pious, they're offering sacrifices of oxen and lambs and grain offerings and frankincense, but he looks at them and sees idolatrous adul- murderers. So, I mean, what what's going on here? That's, that's, that's pretty strong condemnation. Yeah, this is, as you said, it's pretty strong. The, the best thing that I can think of to explain it from a... New Testament side is, uh, first off, there's the notion of the remnant, 
which yeah. Paul talks about in Romans. He he deals with, you know, why has Israel fallen away? I think that's chapters 9 through 11. <clears throat> and so then he talks about the remnant. Uh, the, that is, you have the Israel that was of the culture, the visible the visible state, uh, the visible worshipers, and then you have those that are actually, uh, that have faith in God's Word. Uh, And these are the faithful throughout the Old Testament and the New. And one thing that I think helps uh, for people that are in the Christian church today is that this notion of there's this visible religiosity, and sometimes a whole nation that's doing this religion, and yet there is still Within that, a smaller group, usually, that's, that's you don't know who they are or where they are. Elijah says, I'm the last one, and Jesus or God says, right. and I know there's 7,000 in Israel. Well, mm-hmm. this was brought out at the time of the Reformation, first by John Wycliffe, who was a professor at Oxford, and he called it the distinction between the visible and the invisible church. So the visible church is... Everybody that's connected in any way with the religious function that's going on, and in the time of Wycliffe, everybody was part of the state church. And uh, then that went over to uh, Bohemia, and John Hus proclaimed the same doctrine for which he was burned at the stake. And then in the next generation or two, Martin Luther picked this up, as did all the Protestants, to say you can't say just because the church has buildings and an organization and does religious things, that theref- and you're a member of that, that therefore you have faith in God and you will be saved. So that's where the, the emphasis then among Protestants became justification by faith alone. It's not your connection to the visible religiosity or whatever it is that you have faith in God's Word. So this we see uh, is really clear in this chapter, but it's also then put into practice and understood uh, traditionally by Protestants anyway as the visible and invisible church distinction. Yeah, I mean, thank, thanks for that. It's really helpful. I mean, and it's uh, I, I appreciate also you bringing out that, you know, Luther— Sometimes, sometimes we act like Luther like invented all this stuff, but (laughs) (laughs) there were precursors, you know, there were these strands of tradition that, you know, I mean, I mean, he would have said that he wasn't saying anything new, right? That it was stuff that had been kind of going on all along. But um, yeah, but I I agree that this is the, the, the basic thrust of the, of the message here that there is, uh, there's this group that's hypocritical that outwardly has a lot of things in common with the rest of the people in Judah that outwardly seems to be like, okay, doing the kind of traditional Israelite stuff, but they're also doing this other stuff. And and maybe some of it's actually been done in secret. And we've seen kind of some hints of that, that maybe they're kind of going off in secret to right. go, you know, right. do these, uh, these uh, idolatrous acts, like, you know, among the tombs at night or whatever the case may be. Uh, but, but you get that. I mean, in a big way, we're going to see this, um, at the at the end of this chapter in verse eighteen, there's this emphatic "I," and I know, but I know their works and their thoughts, right? And so we're gonna we're gonna get to that. But I think that's what's going on in this chapter that God's saying He's not fooled by appearances, just because they show up on Sunday and not what would have been Saturday, right? But they show up right. on Sunday and they <laughs> yeah. and they offer their their offerings and they seem really religious, right? And they even have part of the liturgy memorized, right? He knows what they've been up to. He knows what's in their heart. 
um, you know, it's striking that in the Greek, the, the word like isn't actual in the Greek. In the Hebrew, the word like isn't even there. It, it just says, you know, the, the one who slaughters an ox is one who kills a right. man or killed right. a man. Um, he who sacrifices a lamb is one who breaks a dog's neck. So, I mean, he's he's saying, like, look, the same people who are doing this stuff, I saw them. They're the very ones who are doing this these other things. Um, and so it, it's not like you just get to cover it all up because, um, you know, someone stamps your membership card or something. Right. And then verse 2 is kind of key for understanding the remnant. So it says, I'll repeat this, this is the one I esteem. That's God talking. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So contrite refers to repentance and trembles at my word means here is the person who has the fear of the Lord and listens to God's word. So that's the person in the Old Testament who God listens to. Who he's, he has, that's his remnant, his chosen people. And everybody else is off doing something else. But those are the people that, that God is connected to. And that continues to be the case today. Right. And, and, and so we know, I mean, at, at least, uh, I mean, if, if by nothing else, the fact that these words are, are, are there, that th- there is this faithful remnant there in Judah after the Babylonians go through that, you know, even though, yeah, they took away the leaders and there was this exile. I mean, th- there there was still some group of people there in Judah that had the word still. It was a small group. Um, they they apparently didn't have like the prestige and the authority that they had previously before the exile, but they were they were there. They trembled at the word of the Lord, right? Um, right. They they still had the fear of God to kind of use that Hebrew idiom. So it, it was there, but I mean, it, it, it's not there. Well, we're going to see later. These are the very ones who are being mocked. And in fact, actually, we should go ahead and right. just read verses five and six because it really completes the thought here. So kind of speaking of trembling at the word, right? So here's five and six, completing the thought. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. So, I mean, I mean, this is really just completing the thought here that we saw in chapter 65. God continues, as you know, he continues to speak. The 65 marks the beginning of his response to Isaiah's intercessory prayer here. And there's a strong distinction between what he refers to as my servants, my chosen ones, right? The, the, the ones who are faithful and those who are faithless. I and mean, here, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's a very, I mean, just so sharp. It says, uh, your brothers who hate you, that's who... Um, that's how they're being described here. So um, it's just building on that distinction that we saw in, in chapter 65, where it said, you know, behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Um, so, I mean, it just, it gets just sharper and sharper. You know, there's this line being drawn in the sand um, and we're being told that, yeah, in fact, the people on this other side of the line, they're mocking the faithful. You know, they're actually they're actually mocking the whole idea of vindication of some kind of miraculous uh, rebuilding. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. God's going to come and he's going to rebuild the temple. Yeah. Let's see it. I I mean, really, they're they're mocking their own God is what's going on. Right. And and this business about your brothers hating, you know, that goes back to the beginning of 
the nation of Israel with the brothers of Joseph. So the brothers of Joseph hate him and get rid of him. And that still goes, I mean, uh, we studied in our Bible class recently, the book of Genesis, and the latter part of that all deals with the 12 sons of Jacob. And even at the very end, uh, after Jacob dies, the brothers are worried that that Joseph's going to get rid of them. I mean, they still yeah. have this internally, this division w- within the house. And, and so this continues on. It continues throughout the history of the Bible. And even in the church today, we look in America, uh, just as just one example, in the early 20th century, there was a division, I believe it was in the Presbyterian church originally. But then this group of people that wanted to hold to the traditional teaching of the scriptures were called fundamentalists, and it was yeah. a word of mocking. And yeah. the the media, the newspapers, uh, just made fun of anybody that really believed the traditional doctrines of scripture. And so that continues to go on today, in the 21st century today. Yeah, Sad, well, thank you for bringing is. up that. Yeah, no, that's a really good connection. And, and um, I mean, we've seen this before, too. The Hebrew word for hate is is not... You know, we, we, we emotionalize everything from our right. 21st century perspective, but it's not really focused on the emotions like your brothers who, you know, are harboring a grudge and they, every time they see you, they, they grit their teeth or something. Right. <laughs> yeah. But, but it's like, but no, the word has to do with division. Right. I mean, like right. to, to love is to be on the same side, to have an alliance, right. To have allegiance, to, to hate is to, to have division, to, to be against them, to, to not have their back. Right. So it's your brothers who are divided from you right who are up to something else who have a different agenda and it's just like you said we have that going on today um i mean we just i mean we have a i mean there's a very contemporary example of this right now the united methodist church right they're going through this right now they're they're splitting up right and it's because of just you know will they hold to god's basic revelation of um institutions like marriage and i mean of course it goes down to the authority of scripture like if the scriptures actually say something, will we actually believe it? Just as you were saying, the fundamentalist question, you know, and um, you, you have a lot of this uh, this scorn um, and, and, and then an actual, like, hatred, it seems, like, going on. But so it's, it's nothing new. There are just these divisions that occur within the people of God. And, and I think this is, uh, this is important for us, and I appreciate you bringing it all the way back to Genesis, because sometimes— we, we get this idea that, oh, man, you know, today there's all these different denominations. There's a million denominations, right? But, you know, back in the day, there was just the one united church, and there were no divisions, right? And, like, yeah, right. Like, like everything was, like, good back then or something. But, like, there have always, always, always been divisions. I mean, because this is the nature of it. The human heart is divisive. Um, the question is not, you know, is God on this side or on, on on these guys' side or these other guys' side, right? The question is, are you on God's side? Right. And the human heart never wants to be on God's side. Yeah. So, you know, we have we have this division going on in the land of Judah um, that there's there's a side that is fervently praying for restoration that wants to see the temple rebuilt. You know, um, we we saw like in '65 that. That, that cry, or rather, it was, I think it was back in 64, right? That that cry of uh, your holy cities have become a wilderness, signs become a wilderness, Jerusalem, a desolation, our holy, beautiful house has been burned by fire, right? So there's this side that's that's mourning this and is seeking God to 
to rebuild and restore. And there's this other side that's that's literally just making fun of the idea. It's not going to happen, guys. It, it that's never we're never getting those days those days back. Um, so here's the division. But God's saying He can see through this all, and He's going to come and sort it out. He's going to render recompense, um, whatever exactly that's going to look like. We uh, only have a few minutes here before we have to go into our break, but let me go ahead and just read uh, the next uh, little section here. Um, I, I might, I might actually just because it does. Uh, I'll, well, maybe, maybe we'll just focus on this. Focus on this first little metaphor here. The first. Uh, three verses of this section, verses seven through nine. There's this uh, birthing metaphor, right? Which is just one of the favorite metaphors of, of the Bible, right? You see it all over the place in the New Testament as well. So here's verses seven through nine. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who's heard of such a thing? Who's seen such things? Shall a land be born in a day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? So uh, now we, we have this, this transition, right, kind of focusing on, on, the, on the positive side here. And God's saying that, yeah, you know, they're mocking it. They're mocking the idea that there could be any restoration, right? You know, let's well, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, right? Well, the mockers are going to be silenced because all of a sudden, just like that, it's going to happen. Um, and, and the metaphor is it's going to be like a woman giving birth, like, before it's even time, like without having to go through labor, it's just like the next day she wakes up and like, there's a baby. Like, I remember like my wife has happened to my wife, Gabby, like she had a, <laughs> like one day she just, uh, um, she was, I think it was while she was like, uh, pregnant or something, but like, she just had this dream that like, just one day, all of a sudden, like, Oh, she just has this baby. And the baby's like sitting upright, like at the table with her, like having a calm conversation <laughs> with her politely discussing the affairs of the day. Just like, a great yeah, just dream. like that. Just, just, I know, I know. Right. But like, just, just like that, boom, there, there it is. Right. Like who's heard of such a thing? Um, a very, a very striking metaphor, right? Yeah. And, and this, uh, and I guess this one it kind of puzzled me when I stud studied it in advance was, now what exactly is that pointing to? So my guess, now you, you probably have studied this more than I have, because you've studied the whole book of Isaiah. I'm thinking it might refer to Pentecost, because that's the only thing where, I mean, Jesus is gone, the, the invisible church, all the faithful have given up. He comes back on the resurrection, but he's still kind of out in hiding. Nobody sees him. And then suddenly Pentecost, boom, you got 3,000 people all at once without any of the traditional stuff of, well, you know, you got you to gotta do your demographic study and you got to do an evangelism <laughs> program. And, and, you know, it takes several years. But now you got 3,000 people baptized all at once, plus all these people that are going back into the countries that they came from. I think it's Pentecost, but I don't know. What do you think? Well, I mean, we've seen this before that like Isaiah, when you look at, when you look back on this, you know, like, um, you know, over 2000 years later, uh, this is operating on multiple levels. Right. And so I think right. on, right. I think you do get to Pentecost, maybe on like on the, on the second level. Um, right. but, but I think on the first level, we're, we're talking about, 
the return of the exiles that oh, yes okay. they're 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 mocking the idea that you know there's ever going to be a restoration right the, the problem again in 63 and isaiah's prayer he, i mean isaiah's prophetically speaking from the perspective of the temple is in ruins the babylonians have already come right even though during his lifetime i mean the babylonians haven't even like come onto the scene right as a right. major world power mm-hmm. power um, he's already speaking and praying from the perspective as if they've already come and like destroyed the place. Because right, so, he can see that in advance because he's a prophet, right. so he knows that. It's, right. Okay, that makes sense. Right, right, and we and we saw that back in chapter thirty-nine, how he is um, there prophesying to Hezekiah, like, oh yeah, you want to be BFF with the Babylonians and you know, <laughs> give the, give them like all your stuff, like, well, they're going to come and they're going to take all your stuff if you want that right. so bad, right? So I mean, he sees it coming. The writing's on the wall. And, and so here we have this idea of actually, yeah, we're going to be restored just like that. And, and how is it going to be just like that? Like, well, be, because, I mean, we're going to have this like fully formed uh, like priesthood and, and leadership structure just one day show up in Judah with all the supplies and all the money and all the animals we need to restart the, the daily sacrifices, right. to rebuild the temple just like that. It's going to be like a, a woman delivering all of a sudden without even going through labor. And this is a, the, the metaphor that we've seen kind of like for the past, or the, or the, the, the dynamic, dynamic we've seen for the past several chapters, that Judah's not ready for it. Judah is a, in a mess. They, they, they don't know how to call on the name of the Lord. They've forgotten. They've forgotten the word of the Lord. So how could they know? Um, but God's just going to show up and it's going to make it happen. Um, and we need to talk about how it connects to levels two and three here, but we got to go into our break. But hang with us, everybody. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 66 here on Thy Strong Word. We'll be right back. create a picture of life, life as it really is, life as it could be. And so if you want God to be your treasure, you need a vision of life with God. I want a vision for life with God because I want God to be my treasure, even as I know that in Jesus, I am his. Dr. Michael Ziegler, this week on The Lutheran Hour. Sundays at 1230 and 5 p.m. on Worldwide KFUO. I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson, host of Moments of Assurance. Jesus said, if anyone enters by me, he shall be saved. You can help us continue to get that message out around the globe while there's still time. One way is to become a church or organization of the week. For a gift of just $595, your church will receive 35 30-second announcements during the week of your choice, identifying your church as well as upcoming events and happenings. And your pastor or a representative from your church, they may record those announcements or we can produce them ourselves either way. In addition, your pastor or representative will have the opportunity to be on one of KFUO's programs. It's a wonderful way to expand your mission outreach and to help KFUO Radio to do the same. For further information, call me, Mark, at 314-996-1520 or mark.hawkinson at kfuo.org.
Welcome back, everybody, to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 66, last chapter of Isaiah, before we get into some New Testament stuff, uh, looking at 2nd and 3rd John, and then um, our, our big focus of the month of January, going into Joshua. Looking forward to that. Some good stuff to look forward to on Thy Strong Word. But here in the last chapter here, we're joined by Pastor Martin Noland, uh, pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in San Mateo, California. If you have any questions for us, last call on Isaiah here. Um, you can call 1-800-730-2727, or if you're in St. Louis, 314-821-0850, or you can send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. Also, I just want to give a shout out to our underwriters. Thank you for your support, Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Check out their work at lhfmissions.org. So here we are. Uh, we were just reading, um, where was it? We picked it up at verse 7, I believe, and, and we got through verse 9. 9, yeah, we read yeah. through 9. Yeah, we were just looking at this. Yeah, this this metaphor for this uh, this bringing forth this. Uh, you know, it's like you know the day she goes into labor, boom, there's a baby, right? Like just 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 like that. Like um, no no long labor pains, right? Like no um, no no long like uh, right, no long process. Just all of a sudden, boom, there it is, right? Like every every uh, married couple's dream, right? <laughs> like uh, you know the, the the instantaneous delivery. Um, and uh, right, and, and so we've seen this kind of again and again that um, in the in these chapters, Judah is in a mess, and, and they're they're not ready for God to show up. But the prayer is that God would do it anyway. You know, back in um, back in I think it was where was it? It was it was in sixty four, right? Um, in verse three, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence, right? Um, you know, there's there's this plea, like yeah, you know, we we haven't been seeking you. We, we're not, we, we're not deserving of you to do this, but please just on your own initiative, just make it happen. And so here's God saying, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to do. And so I think on the first level, we do just get like this, you know, amazing restoration, you know, Cyrus is just going to waltz into Babylon and make it so. But then as you were saying, brother, I do think on level two, the, the comparison would be, would be Pentecost. Um, really following like the the resurrection of our our lord jesus i mean really the return from exile was like a resurrection for the people of god and so our lord jesus literally is raised from the dead um and when that's publicly made known it's like all of a sudden you have the rebuilding of the temple and what's the temple right well it's it's actually the body of christ all of us being built into it you know happening in a big way on pentecost all of a sudden boom three thousand people are baptized and join and expand, right? The the people of God, that the church just seems to go from like, you know, zero to thousands all at once. So yeah, I think on level two, it's definitely like the resurrection and Pentecost. Um, and then of course on, on level three, we're looking forward to the, the heavenly Jerusalem, which is not going to be like some, you know, long government project that takes, you know, just forever and ever and ever. Right. Um, you know, like uh, I heard the other day, right? Like we, we've been 30 years away from nuclear fusion for the past 40 years, <laughs> right? Like it's like it's one of those things, like the moving goalposts, right? Like no, right. like all of a sudden, like boom, a heavenly Jerusalem, right? Um, so I, I think there's those like three levels on that. This this metaphor here. What what are your thoughts? 
No, I agree. I think that makes the most sense now, too. And what you said about the uh, body of Christ, it's that's the connection, the, the terminology of the temple in the old and the body of Christ in the new. So you can see, otherwise, people think of temple and they think of that big structure on the hill in Jerusalem. But if you think of the temple as the body of Israel and then the body of Christ as the church, then there's continuity and then the three levels all make sense. Right. Right. Yeah, no. And, and um and I th- and I think that when you appreciate the temple both for what it is and for what it isn't, you know, that you can read this rightly. I, I think that sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we're like, oh man, they're really obsessed with the temple, right? But right, don't right. they know the te- the temple is just <laughs> a building, right? It's just a building, right? And you know, and like uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that people get into, like on on Twitter and stuff like that. Like, don't you know the church is the building, right? And it's like, well, yes, this is true. Um, I think I think we all we all kind of knew that. But the thing is, right, un- until the Lord Jesus comes as the the true temple, right? Well, the temple really was a temple. <laughs> I mean, right. the, the the building actually was like the temple where God like made His presence known, where where He. Where, where the word of God was spoken, where the forgiveness of sins happened. I mean, it was it was the thing that actually prefigured Christ, right? Like not right. not because it was um, you know made of like you know magical bricks or something like that, but because God really did make Himself present there. So, you know, it, it's it's an interesting tension here in sixty six because really there is this this um i mean and this is what we're going to get to we should just go ahead and read this next portion here but there is definitely this real like we want the temple to be rebuilt we want jerusalem to be rebuilt that's an important thing um that's really part of god's plan but yet that's all in tension with what we read in the first verse right heaven's my throne the earth's my footstool and what's this house you'd build for me right what's this place of my rest you're going to build right like so there's this tension like the temple is important but it's only important because of god not because of anything that we're doing right and that just popped into my mind as you reread verse one is that the temple was an extension of the tabernacle and the purpose of both of those their first temple was to house the ark of the covenant which was god's mercy seat or throne of grace and in the second temple that's created after the Babylonian captivity, there is no Ark of Covenant there. So that, that's the whole point. They they made this temple, but did God really want it? I mean, was that really part of his plan? I think that people don't always understand that the second temple was quite different that way. But anyway, that's just a side, a side thought. Yeah, no, it is, it is it is a difficult question to know exactly what things were like in the Second Temple. Like uh, there was a lot of continuity, but there was a, there were some things like you were saying that weren't that weren't quite the same. So I mean, it gets into yeah, no, there, there's some definite like real uh, historical questions there. But yeah, I mean the the, the major thing, right? We, we should see that the, the temple is always meant to be about the place of God's presence. Right. If we're exactly. getting anything else out of the temple, then we're, we're kind of mistaking and missing the, the forest for the trees. So right. um, we do have in, in seven to nine, there's this, you know, this, uh, this birthing, this rapid birthing metaphor for the restoration of God's people. Let's go ahead and complete the thought here. Verses 10 through 14. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. 
For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, and you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees, as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show indignation against his enemies." So just a a beautiful, powerful metaphor for the extent of the restoration, right? So it's going to happen suddenly, but it's going to happen suddenly and abundantly too, Um, you know, and and, and we see this, of course, that, I mean, when, when Cyrus goes and supplies them with everything that they need and they go back, I mean, he gives them an armed guard, he gives them gold from the imperial treasury of, of Persia, right? He gives them um, like all the sacrifices that they could need for, I mean, just a huge period of time. He's got it all supplied there. I mean, the temple ends up getting built twice as tall as it was before. So, I mean, there's this abundance and these are abundant metaphors that the peace is not just like a temporary thing that is like something that might dry up, but it's like flowing and gushing like a river. And then, of course, um, the, the other metaphor, right? And this is this is one that, you know, maybe we, maybe we blush about because God seems to be comparing himself to a woman here. But, I mean, that is that is the metaphor that um, he's comparing. This is really something. He's comparing the consolation of his faithful, like a baby being consoled, um, nursing at his mother's breast, you know. And, I mean, that's, that's a beautiful metaphor. You know, I've got a little girl. Um, at home about a year old Natalie and yeah you know things might be terribly wrong she you know she may have gotten shots earlier in the day you know she may have like you know bonked her head or something like that but when, when she goes to nurse you know it's like all the problems in the world just melt away like nothing is wrong she like she always like when she's done with nursing, she just turns her head with the biggest goofiest smile on her face. Like yeah, I remember the that. Wor- like like I am in heaven. Yeah, I am yeah. in heaven. Nothing is wrong anymore. I mean, yeah. But like that's that image of that happy baby, right? That just like knows nothing but like peace and joy. That's the image of God's consolation for His people. Yeah, because uh, now I raised three of my own girls, and uh, yeah, I remember. You know, before they get to the point of feeding, they're grumpy or they might be crying or, you know, the whole world is falling apart. And then, as you said, after they've after they've had their fill, it's like the whole world is fine. It it just it complete change in in the attitude of the child. Yeah, that's that's a great imagery. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, and it's really something just how, I mean, we, we, we see these, these metaphors that God uses, like both like the language of fatherhood and the language of motherhood. But I, I mean, like, just, I, I feel like the, the takeaway is that kind of like every earthly image falls short of God's own um, status as our true heavenly father, that the kind of consolation and love and care and tenderness that he has toward us, right? Like, you can just kind of pick like the best things in this life of like of every of every kind and and all of them are just kind of a shadow of what's that of what that's like and um yeah you see that in um an initial fulfillment with just the the abundant and generous provision that's made for the exiles who return and the people who who survived in Judah through Cyrus of Persia 
Um, but then also the pouring out of the spirit, right? Like it's not like, I mean, I mean, and that's really what you get um, on Pentecost that Peter, he goes and he cites Joel. And the idea is like the, the spirits being poured out kind of like this idea, like a river, like it's like, it's not like, Oh, well, God's like, here's a little bit of spirit. Maybe I'll put it on Peter. Right. Like, no, it's like, it's like it just being poured out left and right on, on all the believers, you know, and like all, you know, there's all kinds of speaking in tongues and doing miracles and all the rest. Like God's not being stingy. He's being extremely generous. He, he's being prodigal with this pouring out of the spirit. Right. Um, and then, of course, on the last day that, you know, he would pour out um, just all the blessings of light and immortality and all the rest to just all believers, just uh, to the same extent he poured those things out on his own son. It's um, it's just I mean, the, the river, the, that, that overflowing river, that flood of grace is um, is quite apt. So, so this is yeah I I'm I'm just thinking about all these images that that are kind of piled up on top of each other. Right. But the main thing that comes to me in verse 13 is the word comfort. So that the in our advent hymns we had what would have one of them comfort comfort ye my people. I forgot what that is, but that is the uh you know we in in liturgical churches, we come back to that theme every year at Advent, right? And and we we often think that Advent is about just getting ready for Christmas, but no, it's really getting ready for the the new Jerusalem and the new Earth because that's the final resolution of all this. So right. the the Christian hope and comfort first comes from and what we know about Jesus and the forgiveness of sins and that we're righteous in God's sight because of Christ's suffering and death, but also that the great comfort is knowing that in the future we have that comfort from God in Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. And that's uh, that's something we come back to every year. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, comfort, comfort, you my people, obviously going back to Isaiah chapter 40, the opening chapter of the right. Babylonian section right. of Isaiah, right? We talked about that, how the first 39 chapters are kind of the Assyrian section, and then 40 through 66 is the Babylonian section. So uh, this doing a good job of closing out and bracketing the whole second Babylonian section. This is the answer to the Babylonian problem. Uh, but then also just taking it to those um, second and third levels that this is the hope of Advent, the the new heavens and the new earth. Um, but you know, th there it is, the the last the last line, right? <laughs> and this is something that we have seen again and again. This is the pattern um, in Isaiah. The last line is always that line that we're kind of like, well, why did he say that last? Um, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. Right. You know, that's the part that makes us squirm because we're like, well, like, what, what is it you're supposed to like, you know, put your critiques in a sandwich or something. Right. Like if you're supposed to compliment the person, then critique them and compliment them again. Right. Like this is <laughs> this right, is how yeah. we uh, <laughs> this is how we operate. But Isaiah always puts the, the, the warning at the end. Right. Uh, and he shall show indignation against his enemies. And it's in that last section here that's coming up. That, that this kind of indignation warning is going to really come into sharp focus here. So I, I think, because I want to make sure that we have uh, enough time to really discuss this here. Um, so I want to go ahead and just read actually like this, the second half of the, of the chapter just flows together from verse 15 to, to the end of the final verse. 
Um, and that way we'll have like a good chunk of time to really talk about it. Cause there's a lot, there's a lot going on to talk about. Like we were saying at the beginning of the hour, um, there's questions about like, you know, the liturgical practice, like why do we stop short of the last verse? Um, you know, there's the connections about, you know, like how does this connect to the, like the end times, the ministry of our Lord Jesus, what was going on in um, Jude at the time. So let, let's pick it up here. Verse 15, after those words of, of warning, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. Verse 15, for behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice shall come together to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations." And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring in your name remain. From new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall not, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Thus ends the book of Isaiah. So very strong, strong finish, right? It it feels like something that you'd read out of uh, Revelation or something like that. It's just so sweeping, a giant scope. Um, You know, it names all the different nations. It's just like going back to like the the table of nations or something like out of Genesis. But, you know, we have mentioned of like Tarshish, which is basically just the furthest imaginable place that, someone speaking Hebrew could think of, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just a very, very broad scope. Um, this, this idea of like all nations, this, this universal judgment going on here, where, where to start? Um, you know, I mean, I, I think that, I, I think the thing that jumps out at me is this again, that you, you've got in the land of Judah this hypocrisy going on where there's there's people who are like yeah we're 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 you know members of the tribe of Judah we're we're Judeans right but you know God knows what they're up to they're you know eating pig's flesh and you know and and they're worshiping abominations and all the rest of it they're worshiping in these secret garden rituals right like going along with this like kind of traditional religion of the broader area so there's there is this hypocrisy going on. But God knows he sees through it. That's what verse 18 is saying. And he's going to sort it out. And uh, I mean, and, and it's how he's going to sort it out. I mean, it says those slain by the Lord shall be many. So, I mean, like the the judgment is described in really fierce terms. 
Yeah, and verse 16, it says the Lord will execute judgment upon all men. And so that one kind of puzzled me as I read in advance, or all flesh in some verses. Uh, so it could be a reflection on what happened in Jerusalem in 586 B.C., the destruction of Jerusalem, and then also 70 A.D., when everybody was there was killed. But maybe that didn't happen in 586. But in 70 AD, there was nobody left standing, right? I mean, that was complete destruction. And then the judgment, here's the third level. The question is uh, whether this refers to the final judgment, because Jesus will come to judge the quick and the dead, and both believers and unbelievers will stand before the judgment throne, although believers will be saved. So all those, you know, how, how do you interpret that passage? I don't have a good answer, but those, I think, are the, the issues that raises. Yeah, I, I think that something right along those lines is just about right, that like on the third level we're looking at um, that, that universal judgment, the resurrection of both the just and the unjust, and, and right. then and then the the judgment of sending those who are on the left to go with the demons into the lake of fire. So, you know, I think that's the third level that, in some ways, from our you know twenty uh, first century perspective, is sort of the most obvious to us. Um, right. I think that the second level, though, is just like you were saying, seventy A.D. Yeah, A.D. seventy. I think that um, you know when when our Lord Jesus came. Um, he puzzled John the Baptist because John the Baptist was, was I mean, he had read Isaiah, right? And he was expecting right. um, the Lord to come and enter into judgment and bring fire and the sword and all the rest. And he's like, Jesus, where, what's going on? Like, am I, am I waiting for you or somebody else, right? Right. Um, but but the, the mystery of, of the time was that the, the, the judgment was actually delayed a generation. And so it was actually just coming 40 years later, just about, that actually then— um, all the all the predictions of our Lord Jesus about the destruction of the temple and all the rest they happened uh, just like he said they were going to happen so that's that's that level two um, where yeah it, it, there was nobody nobody left in in the city everyone who survived was they survived because they took our Lord's advice and they got out of there and they head headed for the hills um, as he as he warned them to um, but then the first level right like what what's going on level one and um I, I agree that that's actually the most the most puzzling thing because I think that if we've been tracking with the logic of Isaiah, reading it in context, everything up to now is saying like, well, Isaiah is talking about the situation in post um, Babylonian invasion Judah, right? This is this is like the wasteland of Judah, you know, after the Babylonians have gone and exiled their leaders and like destroyed most of their major cities, the the, the messy state. So, what judgment was was coming? you know, after that. And, you know, if, if the idea is here comes um, the exiles with the riches of Cyrus of Persia, right, to rebuild and to restore Jerusalem, right, we were just reading that section, then it seems like the judgment we're talking about is some kind of judgment that happens around that time. So, you know, like the, uh, you know, the late, you know, 500s, uh, you know, BC, when, when all these things are restored. And so, it's hard to say because we, we don't really have a a very strong description. Like when we read, like, say, Ezra and Nehemiah, like you, you don't really see like a, uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, that the temple was rebuilt and the walls were restored. And then, you know, Ezra commanded that all the infidels be put to death and 3000 were slain that day. Like we, I don't I don't recall anyway 
reading that <laughs> yeah. when we were when we were looking at Ezra. So I mean, like, so it's a little it's a little bit puzzling. Um, I mean, we do know um, from from the uh, the books of Moses that idolatry was punishable by death. Um, and that certainly they would have been within rights to go and execute anybody who had been worshiping to these pagan gods. So it, it could have happened. Um, it, it's just that there doesn't seem to really be an emphasis on it in, in what we have anyway of the latter books of scripture. So there's nothing that we can like really point to that, you know, and, and then the priests and the prophets ordered their execution. But I don't know. I, I feel like it, it may well have happened, actually. Mm. Your thoughts? Yeah, it. I don't really have a good answer to that, except that the historical books like Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah have a narrative that kind of goes from one point to the next in time, and whereas the prophetic books, in terms of time or time sequence, they, my impression is that they often are out of sequence. So you, you jump from one period of time to another. So it, it may not be referring to the Babylonian captivity or thereafter. I, I don't know. It's a, I think it's pretty clear that 16 is fulfilled in 70 AD and also yeah. has a, as an echo in the last times. But yeah, try to try to find that in the, the 586 or the 500s is much more difficult. And I, I just don't think it it applies there, but that's, that's what I've come up with. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it, it's a, it's a challenge. Um, but, but going on and looking, um, you know, in verses 18 and following this, you know, like bringing all the survivors back, you know, that, that is something that is more easily seen indeed on all three levels. Um, of course, on level three, that, you know, at the resurrection of all flesh, you know, there's this glorious resurrection where, right. um, I mean, John looks out in Revelation, right? And we're going to get there soon, Lord willing, and re- to the book of Revelation. Um, and he looks out and, you know, there's all these this, these multitudes before the Lamb, you know, speaking in all these different languages of earth on, on the resurrection. It's going to be people from all times and places um, that are, you know, they're numbered among our brothers and sisters. Um, they're on, on level two, of course, at Pentecost, right? There's right. all of these Judeans, right, all, um, who are there from all over the world who have come up to, to gather for the festival um, there at Pentecost. And like there, the, the apostles are speaking all these different languages. And then even on level one, you know, after Cyrus's decree, you know, everyone who had like gotten out of town because of the Babylonians, they were able to go back. And right. we and we know that people went from they went all over the place. There were people hiding out down in Egypt, you know, when the Babylonians rolled through. So there were people who were from all over the place, but they could come back um, right. once when Cyrus Cyrus dealt with the uh, with the Babylonians, and so um, they they could come back. Um, we we know from from reading Ezra that um, yeah, they they did need to like appoint uh, new priests, uh, even among those who had um, gone away. Um, and so they, they were coming back. And so, I mean, you, you do have a picture there that I think is easier to see on all three levels, which is just a beautiful one, that that the universality of the church, that, that the body of Christ, as we were saying earlier, just, just extends throughout time and space. Yeah, so the, the first group of people that would have understood, I mean, anybody hearing this Isaiah 66 about all the nations coming back, at Isaiah's time would have thought he was kind of crazy, but the people, the exiles that came back, they would say, oh, 
I remember this being talked about by Isaiah yep. at the end of his scroll, yep. you know. So there, I think that's really clear that that is the, the initial and, and pr- maybe primary uh, fulfillment of that prophecy. Yep, yep, exactly. Yeah, words that Isaiah's in Isaiah's lifetime would have sounded crazy, right? The whole the thing about Babylon would have sounded crazy. But yeah. yes, uh, time, time told that God knew what he was doing and that Isaiah was, in fact, speaking the word of the Lord. All out of time. But thank you so much, brother. It was great having you back on. And uh, yeah, looking forward to having you on soon. Happy, happy New Year and Epiphany season to you. Happy New Year to you, too, and to all the people that have listened to us. Thank you, everybody. Pastor Martin Nolan from Grace Lutheran Church in San Mateo, California. Moving on back to the New Testament. Till next time, everybody. Peace. Thank you for listening and supporting by Strong Word.